everybody, and welcome to the second episode of They Didn't Teach Me This in School, a podcast about poverty, culture, and America. This week, we're going to be talking about the legacies of slavery in America, and if you're interested in any of the resources that I talk about, and trust me, there are a lot this week, you can head over to the blog. They're all linked there, and you can find them, plus some extras, and you can look into them more yourself. The blog is paytonprooks.wixsite.com slash podcast. I'm going to put it in the description of this episode, and I'm also going to read it again at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for being here for a second week. I'm so excited, and I hope that you like this episode. Slavery. America's Original Sin. It began in 1619 when the first ship carrying enslaved Africans arrived on the coast of the colony of Virginia, and many people believe, or want to believe, or were taught to believe that it ended with the 13th Amendment in 1865. In reality, our country is still plagued by the effects of slavery today. Last year, the New York Times began the 1619 Project. The 1619 project is ongoing and was started in 2019, the 400-year anniversary of the beginning of slavery in America. Its aim is to reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the center of our national narrative. These essays will pop up in many episodes of this podcast because the impacts of slavery are still present in almost every aspect of our day-to-day lives. However, there are a few modern-day institutions and policies that are more connected to slavery than others, and those are the ones that I want to get into today. The first is the prison system. While the prison system, mass incarceration, and their effects on African-American communities today are the topic of a future episode, it's important to note how we've gotten to this point, because there's a pretty direct line from slavery to modern-day prisons and incarceration. Brian Stevenson, the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, wrote an essay for the 1619 Project entitled, Why American Prisons Owe Their Cruelty to Slavery. In this essay, Stevenson argues that, quote, slavery gave America a fear of black people and a taste for violent punishment. Both still define our criminal justice system, unquote. He goes on to state a staggering statistic. The United States has the highest incarceration rate of any country in the world. We have around 4% of the world's population, but around 22% of the world's prison population. This is for a variety of factors, including mandatory sentencing laws, three strikes laws, and broken windows policing. These are three really important concepts that I didn't fully understand when I started researching this episode, so I'm going to break them down for you here. We'll start with mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimum sentencing laws were created during the War on Drugs in the mid-1970s and are statutes that require judges to sentence offenders to a specified minimum prison term for a specific crime. In other words, judges, arguably the most impartial facet of the justice system who are experts of the law, do not have the ability to sentence an offender to any shorter prison time than the mandatory minimum specifies. Judicial discretion is completely cut out of the picture. One example of a mandatory minimum is for the possession of meth. For the distribution of 5 grams of methamphetamine, a sentence of at least 5 years must be given. The use of mandatory minimums has declined since the war on drugs, but many states still have them in place today, and they have caused tens of thousands of low-level offenders to serve harsh punishments that are often denounced even by the judges forced to impose them. Next, let's talk about three strikes laws. 
Like mandatory minimums, three strikes laws are a way that legislators have removed judicial discretion when it comes to sentencing. Under these laws, a person is considered to be beyond rehabilitation after they've committed a third crime. Therefore, once they've reached their third strike, the punishment is much harder than it would be otherwise. Because of these laws, there are people serving life in prison for three minor crimes. Clearly, these punishments are inhumane, and they don't make any sense from an economic perspective either. It's easy to forget, but it costs the state money to keep people in jail. At its worst, a three-strikes law can cause the government to spend up to $500,000 incarcerating a person who committed three $500 crimes. And here's where we get into our court case for this episode, the case of Faint Vincent Wislow. This case takes place in Louisiana, where there's a four-strikes law rather than a three-strikes law, but the idea is the same. In 2008, Winslow, who was homeless at the time, acted as the go-between in the sale of two small bags of marijuana, worth only $10 in total, to an undercover police officer. The police did not arrest the white seller, even though they witnessed the entire interaction, but Winslow, who is black, was sentenced to mandatory life without parole because of Louisiana's four strikes law. This case, along with the countless others the ACLU describes in its study, A Living Death, Life Without Parole for Nonviolent Offenses, which is linked on the blog, shows how these three strikes laws can strip people of their rights and ruin their lives, even for minor offenses. And this case is especially significant because it very clearly shows the racial bias. Winslow was charged when the white seller was not. Finally, let's talk about broken windows policing. The broken windows theory is a theory of criminology that states that visible signs of crime and civil disorder create an urban environment that encourages further crime and disorder. So, in an effort to prevent major crimes, police attempt to create create an environment of law and order by targeting smaller crimes, such as jaywalking and vandalism. However, there are a lot of issues with this theory. Overall, there's just not that much evidence that it works the way it's intended to. Rather, it creates over-policing in minority communities, which leads to even more problems. Even the man who first coined the term, criminologist George Kelling, has stated that there's a lot of things done in the name of broken windows that he regrets. Furthermore, the theory is often deeply intertwined with the issue of race in America's cities. Kelling argues that when discretion of what constitutes disorder is left up to police, racial, ethnic, and class-based biases can come into play. Similarly, broken windows policing frames small crimes as the first step on the way to larger crimes, causing officers to treat the people who commit these misdemeanors as people who will become bigger criminals if the officers don't take action now. These three factors show how and why America has the highest incarceration rate in the world, but they also do more than that. They show how we've ended up with a prison system and a justice system that both disproportionately target people of color. The 13th Amendment seemingly ended slavery, but there's a loophole. It made an exception for those convicted of crimes. This means that slavery is still in the structure, in the foundation of our nation. This loophole was immediately exploited. After the end of slavery, the Southern economy was in shambles. As a result, African Americans were arrested in mass for very minor offenses. It basically made them slaves again. We evolved, I say in air quotes, from slavery being our main form of racial control to the criminal justice system being our main form of racial control.
In her book, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander, a highly acclaimed civil rights lawyer, makes a similar point. She suggests that slavery was partially a means to an end, to disenfranchise African Americans. Since then, we have continually evolved the means by which we disenfranchise this population, from slavery to Jim Crow to fear by the KKK, but we've never stopped doing it. And now we use the criminal justice system. Convicted felons in most states can't vote for the rest of their lives, meaning that their constitutional right to vote has been legally stripped from them forever. In his article, Stevenson goes on to suggest that anything that challenged the racial hierarchy could be seen as a crime. All of those factors that we discussed earlier, like mandatory minimums and three strikes laws, were not as expressly racialized as the black codes, but the implementation of them was essentially the same. The fact of the matter is that black and brown people are disproportionately targeted, stopped, suspected, incarcerated, and shot by police in this country. While the prison system and police brutality most clearly parallel slavery in modern society, there's a second, less talked about issue in which the roots of slavery plague our lives today, the racial wealth gap. If you don't know what the racial wealth gap is, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's the difference in wealth between the average white family and the average family of color. Since we're talking about the roots in slavery, we'll primarily be discussing the wealth gap between white families and African American families, but there are wealth gaps between white families and Asian American families, Native American families, and so forth. A really great resource that I've used a lot in my research for this episode is The Color of Wealth by Meju Louis. This book is available pretty much anywhere books are sold, and if you're interested in learning more about this topic, it's a really awesome place to start. Similarly, you might be wondering why I'm discussing the wealth gap rather than the income gap. There are two pretty simple reasons. The first is that the wealth gap is more firmly rooted in history, specifically in slavery. Secondly, differences in wealth are more exaggerated than differences in income, but don't get me wrong, there are differences in income because wealth is affected by previous generations, hence the history aspect. Louis opens her book by stating that for every dollar owned by the average white family in the United States, the average family of color has less than one dime. Yes, you heard that correctly. Less than one dime. Why is this? Well, there are a lot of reasons. When it comes to wealth, past injustices all the way back to slavery breed current suffering. Let's look at net wealth. For our purposes, a family's net wealth can be defined as assets minus debt. In the United States, the median white family has a net wealth of $171,000, while the median black family has a net wealth of just $17,600, and that gap is growing. So the question becomes, why? To find out, we have to look at history, specifically January of 1865. Like the prison system, the racial wealth gap has its roots right after the Civil War. In the beginning of 1865, Right as the Civil War was ending, Lincoln signed a bill that would set aside land for former slaves. If this bill had gone through the way it was supposed to, we would live in a very different America. But we know that this isn't how it happened. Rather, weeks later, after Lincoln had been assassinated, his successor, Andrew Johnson, reversed the bill. As a result, by the end of 1865, many former slaves who lived on this land had been evicted. This land was the only wealth that many of them had, and it was taken right out from under them. Similarly, it's important to remember one key thing about wealth. It's generational. 
And around this time, during the 1860s, slaves had been creating wealth for their owners for nearly 250 years, and whites got to keep it. So not only did these former slaves not get even a bit of the wealth that they had created for their owners, they didn't get to create their own wealth from the land that they had been promised. And here's one more thing to keep in mind. Wealth is not only generational, it grows over generations. Wealth begets wealth, and the wealth of today is dependent on the wealth of our ancestors. So when these former slaves were robbed of this wealth in the 1800s, it set their families back for generations. They're permanently at different starting lines than white families. Here's a quick example. Let's say that in 1863, you had $100, and that $100 kept getting passed down from generation to generation. Because of compounding interest, the value of that money would continually increase as the generations passed. Today, that $100 would be worth more than $3.5 million. Another great resource that discusses slavery's importance in our present economy is another 1619 Project article, this one by Matthew Desmond, a professor of sociology at Princeton University. In his article, he breaks down America's progression from slavery to the brutal form of capitalism we have today. The cotton grown and picked by slaves during the height of slavery was the country's most valuable export. This, in turn, led to wealth for slaveholders, but not for slaves. Not only did slavery prevent African Americans from building wealth, however, it created some managerial systems that we still use today. For example, slave plantations had managerial hierarchies. They paid close attention to the inputs and outputs of each worker, and extreme, highly advanced data analysis was developed. This greatly increased productivity, and we still see many of these systems today. Employees are still monitored, and the managerial hierarchies that were first implemented on slave plantations are still used. It's important to note, however, that slavery pulled down all workers' wages, which is absolutely still an effect of the racial wealth gap today. Like Louis argues in her book, Desmond states that slavery built white fortunes, originating the black-white wealth gap that annually grows wider. And let's look at this from another angle. Even today, African Americans make far less money than whites and are more likely to be unemployed or discriminated against during the employment process. For example, remember those cases that I mentioned were used as president in Emma DeGraffenreid's case last week? They weren't super relevant to Emma's specific circumstances, but five out of those eight cases were examples of employment discrimination. Take the case of Chance v. the Board of Education of the City of New York. In this case, the judge ruled that the preliminary tests that had to be taken by supervisory position applicants in city schools significantly discriminated against Black and Puerto Rican applicants and were not sufficiently job-related. Even if we fix these issues, there are still centuries worth of inequality that have compounded, namely through land and housing. Today, most people's wealth is through their housing. And this is where another version of wealth discrimination comes in. During the Great Depression, FDR's New Deal gave mortgage credit to the public. This was a great thing for white people, but the Federal Housing Administration wouldn't insure houses in areas it decided were too risky. And how was this risk calculated? You probably guessed it, by race. This is a process known as redlining. Redlining is still around today, but the term comes from the time of the Depression. 
banks and other places that gave out loans for mortgages would literally have maps with red lines over the areas that were considered African-American neighborhoods and wouldn't let black people live anywhere else. In this case, the effects of racism, less wealth in African-American families, became the cause of more racism in the form of redlining. Later, when African-Americans did start to be allowed better housing opportunities, they were more likely to get subprime loans. Subprime loans are loans that start really cheap and get more expensive and are usually given to people with low credit scores. However, even with perfect credit scores, African-Americans would sometimes still get subprime loans. The reason? Big banks, namely Wells Fargo, targeted African-American churches. And as a result of this, of these subprime loans, black communities lost 53% of their wealth. Another aspect of the racial wealth gap is education. After graduation, white college graduates' wealth increases while black college graduates' wealth decreases. Why? Because black college graduates are more likely to be the most educated person in their networks, so they are more likely to get asked for financial help, and they often give it. Not only are there disparities between the economic wealth of white families and families of color, there are other types of wealth, like networks and education. Specifically, there are a few things that Louis calls transformative assets. Transformative assets boost lifelong prosperity and security, and the most common are down payments on houses and college tuition. You can see here that wealth begets wealth. If you have a wealthier family who is willing and able to help you with college tuition or a down payment on a house, you will go through life with less debt and more financial security than someone whose family wasn't able to help them in that way. And the issue doesn't end with individuals or families either. In recent decades, policy has benefited corporations and major asset owners and harmed disadvantaged people of all races. Much like slavery, the racial wealth gap doesn't just harm minorities, it harms working class white people too. The issue of the racial wealth gap in America is incredibly complex and shows up in all aspects of life. It literally goes back almost 200 years, and there's so much history along the way that we can never cover all of it. However, there's one point that's abundantly clear. In America, we start the race at different starting lines. Until we tackle wealth disparity, we will not have racial or economic justice in this country. If you're feeling overwhelmed by all of the information in this episode, don't worry. It's so much to take in, and I gave it all to you really, really quickly. When I'm doing research for my classes or for this podcast, I often find myself just staring at my computer screen, wondering how in the world we ever got to this point. We say we wouldn't have tolerated slavery or Jim Crow laws or segregation, but we are tolerating this. And I truly think it's an issue of education. For so many of us, the education system has failed. We learned a sugar-coated, glossed-over version of history, and it's not fair to us, and it is definitely not fair to the people that continue to be harmed because of our ignorance. In another 1619 Project essay, Nikita Stewart, a New York Times reporter, discusses the way slavery is mistaught in schools. She argues that schools aren't as overtly racist as they once were, but that schools do still struggle to teach children about slavery. Across the United States, there's no uniform curriculum that schools use to teach slavery. In many states, students can't identify slavery as the cause of the Civil War and can't identify the 13th Amendment as the official end of slavery in this country. 
Why isn't the history of slavery in America taught properly? Because it's ugly. It's not a history that any of us are proud of, but by ignoring the issue rather than confronting our mistakes head on, we are dooming history to repeat itself. Students all around the country graduate without an adequate understanding of the history of slavery in America, which only perpetuates the issue further as it renders American graduates unable to understand the extent of the damage that has been caused and continues to this day by an institution that was built into our constitution by the founding fathers. There's so much information surrounding the teaching of slavery in America and how we got to this point. So if you're interested in learning more about the history of slavery education, I'd highly recommend Stewart's article. When looking at articles like this and hearing from my fellow students about how uneducated we find ourselves being on these issues, it can be really disheartening. Education in this country has failed so drastically. Luckily, there are scholars like Louis and Stevenson who are bringing these issues to light. And luckily for us, it's never too late in life to educate ourselves and fight for change. In order to create this change, we must acknowledge the 400 years of injustice that haunt us. As Stevenson says, we are at one of those critical moments in American history when we will either double down on romanticizing our past or accept that there is something better waiting for us. When faced with 400 years of injustice, it can be hard to imagine how we could even begin to create a truly just society. It's disheartening to even consider the journey we will have to embark on. However, the work is made meaningful because we are carrying on work that people have been getting involved in for years and decades and centuries. Our work is on a continuum that began before we were here and will continue long after we're gone. As Stevenson said in his essay, hopelessness is the enemy of justice. I really hope that you guys enjoyed this week's episode of They Didn't Teach Me This in School. I've had so much fun researching it and creating it, and I've learned so much along with you guys. I really hope that you learned something this week. If you're interested in any of the resources that I discussed or learning about any of these topics further, go to the blog for They Didn't Teach Me This in School. It has all of the resources and more. It has my contact information, and it's a really great resource if you want to learn more about any of these topics. If you want to check it out, it's paytonprooks.wigsite.com slash podcast. I'll spell it for you because I know it's super hard to spell. It's P-E-Y-T-O-N-P-R-O-K-S-C-H dot wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. I'm also going to put the link in the description of this episode. I hope that you guys join me again next week for when we talk about healthcare, and I really hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. See you next week. Thank <music> you.